This is DIA Connections. I was incredibly honored to be even considered to be uh, the president's briefer. But, you know, in our business, there is a call to duty. And I said, well, of course, I would be honored to do that and to represent our agency. One of the things I had on my bucket list was to, to watch the movie Air Force One, you know, with Harrison Ford on Air Force One. So I was able to do that. <laughs> and I don't know how many people in the world have done that, but, uh, but I was able to do that. While the president was extremely gracious to me, it was very cool hanging around the president and traveling with him and seeing him at moments that most people do not see the president in. But I knew that uh, I was neither his policy advisor or his, I was his friend. I was his intelligence officer and I was representing the intelligence community. Those are the words of the Defense Intelligence Agency's own Jim Denoy. Back in 2010, he was President Barack Obama's daily briefer and he's with us to share his experiences. Thanks for joining us on DIA Connections and for our episode about the President's Daily Brief. To be perfectly honest, this episode happened by accident. It came as a result of a conversation we had with retired DIA career intelligence officer Jim Denoy. We spoke with Jim for our episode about the Arctic, And that's when he told us that one of his many assignments in his 35 years at the Defense Intelligence Agency was daily briefer to President Obama. So being the brilliant producers that we are, we said, Hey Jim, would you mind speaking with us a little longer than expected? I think we have a lot more to talk about. And he did. So away we go. If you're not familiar with the President's Daily Brief, or PDB as it's commonly referred to, Here's the perfect definition, and it comes from John Brennan, former director of the CIA. What's that, you say? The CIA director kicking off a DIA podcast? Just listen. You'll understand. The PDB is among the most highly classified and sensitive documents in all of our government. It represents the intelligence community's daily dialogue with the president in addressing the challenges and seizing the opportunities related to our national security. It has gone from a document written by just a handful of people at CIA to one produced by officers representing an array of organizations, specialties, and disciplines in the intelligence community. Up until 2010, the President's Daily Briefer was always someone from CIA. But that streak came to an end when Jim Denoy from the Defense Intelligence Agency was bestowed that honor. And it was a far cry from how his highly decorated DIA career began. I started in the intelligence business actually as a GS3 file clerk at the FBI's intelligence division over in the Hoover building right here downtown. That got me into the intelligence business. Uh, After that, about a year later, I was brought on board by DIA and started at DIA actually as an imagery analyst at the National Photographic Interpretation Center, and that was in 1983. Humble beginnings for Jim. Before we really deep dive into our discussion with him and about all things PDB, we thought it would be a good idea to give a little context to the subject. So let's bring into the conversation another DIA teammate, Dr. Adrian Wolfberg. Dr. Wolfberg works in the Office of Oversight and Compliance at DIA and has served in the national security arena since the early 1980s. During his tenure as an analyst, he briefed a president, a cabinet officer, and a chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He's currently a research fellow at the Ann Cara Christie Institute for Intelligence Research at the National Intelligence University. 
In 2017, Dr. Wolfberg authored an article titled The President's Daily Brief, Managing the Relationship Between Intelligence and the Policymaker. Dr. Wolfberg, let me start by asking you what was your motivation for writing about the dynamics between policymakers and briefers? No one had really investigated the briefer, him or herself, the person who is the carrier of this PDB information to the policymaker. There have been lots of attention spent in the media, in books, about what the president had uh, been involved with the PDB, but just the president. But there's a whole community of people who interact with the PDB and the PDB briefers, and no one had ever looked at the nature of this interaction. And that's part of my academic background is how people interact when they come from completely different uh, social and cultural worlds. Can you give us a little bit on the backstory of the PDB? When did it originate? It began back uh, in 1946, just after uh, World War II ended. And the person who created it was uh, President Truman, and he did this in, in 46. When he was vice president at the end of World War II, he often didn't get insight into the intelligence that was going on. They used to make those reports to the president, piles of papers like that, and he didn't have time to go through them, and if he did, he didn't have time to coordinate them, so I had all those intelligence reports. Some of them were just duplicates of what the others had already told, so arranged that the president, every morning on his desk, would have a report of the intelligence as it affected the government of the United States. He could go over it in 15 minutes. When he became president after Roosevelt died, he decided he was going to make sure that he was kept abreast of uh, important information. At that time, remember, the uh, big threat was uh, the Japanese bombing at Pearl Harbor. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. And so he did not want to be surprised again by having another uh, Pearl Harbor. So from the very beginning, from 1946, it was CIA analysts who provided the article, who wrote the articles, and that CIA then put together and gave it to uh, policymakers. That continued for decades. We'll hear more later about Dr. Wolfberg's scientific study. He conducted that study interviewing 14 briefers from two different administrations. But first, let's get back to our history-making teammate from the Defense Intelligence Agency. Jim Denoy was an analyst by trade, specializing in Europe, Eurasia, and NATO issues. His tours of duty included assignments in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the Office of the Secretary of Defense, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the FBI. He had extensive experience supporting senior U.S. and allied defense and security leaders and served as an intelligence support officer to the Secretary of Defense and several four-star combatant commanders. He told us that the experience as a PDB briefer was the pinnacle of his career. But he said a lot more than that in a discussion with our historian Paul Isaacson. Naturally, Paul's first question to Jim was how he felt about being the Defense Intelligence Agency's first briefer to the President of the United States. To be able to represent all of the 16,500 members of our agency and the capabilities and the history that we have. A tremendous uh, humbling experience and, and one that I did not 
want to let our agency down. You can imagine it's tough enough to, to not want to fail in this issue, but to be the first uh, non-CIA briefer uh, was also an additional, an additional challenge, if you will. So what, what did I feel? Great humility, great pride in our agency that uh, we had reached this, this situation, this, this pinnacle in a sense, because the president is customer number one, as I think former director DNI Clapper would always say, the president is the commander in chief. And we are uh, here to support the defense community. And the president in his role commander in chief is, is customer number one. So tell us about a day in the life of the presidential briefer. <laughs> what, what was your daily schedule like? Well, that day started at 11 p.m., 2,300 hours in military time. Uh, I would wake up at 11 p.m. every night. I would be at the office at Langley at midnight and would review the actual PDB. At that time, the, the articles were probably about a half a dozen articles, some short, some longer, some, uh, some longer think pieces. So at that time, the, the, the PDB briefer, the POTUS briefer, was the last sort of quality control for the PDB. So, so between midnight and I would say midnight anywhere to about 3 a.m., reading and reviewing uh, the articles, making sure that at least um, from my perspective and, and what we knew about what the president wanted, that, that the story held together, that there were no questions that, that the president might, might think had not been answered or that the briefing actually raised more questions than answered. And then provide that input, those, those edits back to the PDB staff. Uh, I did have the ability, the, the POTUS briefer did have the ability to, to hold an article if in fact it did not seem to uh, fall together. And uh, at five o'clock in the morning, the analysts would sit down in a chair and you'd be able to ask them questions. Uh, one of the things I would always ask them, I would ask this of every, every PDB author is, why do you think the president should take time out of his busy schedule to read your piece? What's the bottom line? Why should he care? Some analysts would know that right away. Others, uh, not so much. And, and frankly, I would tell them that that's something you need to know before you even write the piece, because it's all about the customer and responding and answering the customer's needs. You're briefing the most plugged in, the most informed person in the world. So that kind of relates to what you just said, how you cut your standard for what would make it into the brief. They are literally the most plugged in person on the planet. So our challenge is how do you provide value added? How do you provide additional information to somebody who has access to all kinds of information at any given time of the day or night? So after around 5 a.m., continue the TikTok, if you will. What, how does the rest of your morning uh, go? There would be additional preparation. I would get all my thoughts together and, and, and my briefing together. Uh, my technique was to uh, jot down uh, just kind of a, a, a sheet of some of the key points that I wanted to brief the president. And I would put that in a sort of uh, what I would call kind of a poor boy slide. No, no PowerPoint rangers were, uh, were on the staff, and certainly I'm not a PowerPoint ranger. So just a very uh, quick bulletized slide of the key points that I, that I took out of all of that, the readings, the engagement with, with the analysts, and these were the points that I wanted to uh, convey to the president. About nine o'clock in the morning, we would go into uh, 
the chief of staffs, uh, the national security advisor's uh, office, and do kind of a, a pre-brief. And that allowed uh, the chief of staff and the national security advisor and the deputy security advisor to find out what we intended to brief and to add their thoughts on that or additional items that they wanted uh, to have in the briefing. And then once that came together, then we would go into the Oval Office about 9.30 in the morning. Of course, every president has their own briefing preferences, and that even includes what they do with the actual physical information. President Kennedy's first version of the Intel briefing in 1961 was called the President's Intelligence Checklist, or Pickle. The Bay of Pigs invasion had just taken place in April, and Kennedy wanted to be sure he was receiving succinct information about national security threats daily. His senior military aide suggested the information come in a form small enough that he could slip it into his pocket so he could carry it with him throughout the day. We had eight years of President Bush. I sit here uh, at this desk. It's a famous old desk called the HMS Resolute. And they were still in the process of adapting to President Obama's uh, briefing style and how he ingests information. And I think this is the key thing for all of us to remember. You know, the P stands for presidents. It's his briefing. The president does not adapt to our briefing style or the way we transmit information. We have to adapt to how the president absorbs and ingests information. And while I came in early on in the uh, Obama's uh, first term, that we're still going through that process. And so one of the things that was key was Unlike President George W. Bush, President Obama wanted to see the written briefing before we went in at 9.30. How do you add value to someone who's already read the material? And what, what I set out to do was to add additional granularity and texture to what was presented. And then we went on to develop what later was called uh, walk-ons. This was information that was not in the briefing and that uh, we thought was timely and felt that we wanted to make sure the president was, was aware, either of trends or late-breaking events that were, were happening. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the key issues that sort of drove uh, the president's interest and agenda during the year that you were there. You know, what were the things that President Obama was most uh, concerned about that I'm sure led you in your decisions about what to include in his briefing? Like all presidents, uh, President Obama had certain things that he wanted to accomplish and were on his agenda. Uh, number one uh, certainly was the issue of, of terrorism and what we were doing on the counterterrorism front. With a decade of experience now to draw from, this is the moment to ask ourselves hard questions about the nature of today's threats and how we should confront them. The issue of Iran's nuclear uh, program was uh, top on the president's uh, list, and we continued to have to provide him updates on that. Something what we would call is, you know, advancing the story. So what, what's the latest update? There should be a way in which they can enjoy peaceful nuclear power while still meeting their international obligations and providing clear assurances to the international community that they're not pursuing a nuclear weapon relations between Pakistan and Afghanistan, given the implications not only on the counterterrorism front, but counter-drug, et cetera. To define that strategy, we have to make decisions based not on fear, but on hard-earned wisdom. 
And that begins with understanding the current threat that we face. Today, the core of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and Pakistan is on the path to defeat. The president was always interested in what was going on in Russia as uh, we were trying to deal with the new realities there. Also, uh, when I was there, actually, uh, you know, the SALT II treaty was signed, and uh, that was one of the trips I had, I had made as one of his briefers was to Prague, where he signed that agreement with Russia. Today is an important milestone for nuclear security and nonproliferation and for U.S.-Russia relations. It fulfills our common objective to negotiate a new strategic arms reduction treaty. In 2015, the Lyndon Johnson Presidential Library released nearly 2,500 previously classified daily briefings that were made to Presidents Kennedy and Johnson in the 1960s. Included in those were briefings made to President Kennedy about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. Perhaps the most famous PDB to be declassified and approved for release is the one made public by the 9-11 Commission on April 10, 2004. It was titled, Bin Laden Determined to Strike in U.S. The intelligence was shared with President George W. Bush on August 6, 2001. That was more than a month before the hijackers carried out the 9-11 attacks. It read, quote, Clandestine foreign government and media reports indicate bin Laden, since 1997, has wanted to conduct terrorist attacks in the U.S. Bin Laden implied in U.S. television interviews in 1997 and 1998 that his followers would follow the example of World Trade Center bomber Ramzi Yusuf and bring the fighting to America. After U.S. missile strikes on his base in Afghanistan in 1998, bin Laden told followers he wanted to retaliate in Washington. End quote. After a short break, Jim describes some interesting interactions with the 44th president, and we'll hear more from Dr. Wolfberg about an aspect of the job that isn't often talked about. This is DIA Connections. Freedom, diversity, equality, democracy, prosperity, community, Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Principles that are the heart of our country. Principles that the Defense Intelligence Agency is committed to safeguarding. Breaking new details about North Korea's missile launch. Russia test firing its new intercontinental ballistic missile nicknamed Satan-2. The international situation is the most complex and demanding that I have seen in all my years of service. We have taken an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic. We speak truth to power and safeguard the information with which we have been entrusted. We do this to protect the freedoms of all Americans, our allies, and future generations around the world, committed to excellence in defense of the nation, D.I.A. Welcome back to DIA Connections and our episode on the President's Daily Brief. 
The Defense Intelligence Agency's Dr. Adrian Wolfberg conducted a scientific study titled The President's Daily Brief, Managing the Relationship Between Intelligence and the Policymaker. He interviewed 14 briefers who briefed 27 different policymakers during the end of the George W. Bush administration and the beginning of the Obama administration. The PDB briefer, by virtue of their intimate interaction every day with the policymaker, almost touches or, or, or touches this line that separates them from, them from the inner circle. And it's a very precarious situation for briefers. In, in a sense, for any human, there's kind of this desire to be in the inner circle. Well, the intelligence briefer is not in that set of people, but yet he or she has to be very careful not to cross that line because they are so close to being in the inner circle. So that was a very interesting finding uh, how the briefers were very aware of this line crossing into the inner circle and always constantly being aware that they should not cross it. Here again is Jim Denoy with DIA historian Paul Isaacson. I think one of the most important questions, I think, for any briefer, and I think you'll agree, is how they balance their own opinion in the briefing and how they stay within their boundary in terms of providing the information but allowing another person to make a decision or to make policy. And I think that's really, really especially important in our jobs. Tell us a little bit more about that, that trust that you had to, to give the president the information he needed, but to sort of leave your opinion out of it, if you will, or let, let the apparatus make the decisions, not you. I think it's important for any briefer, whether you're briefing the president of the United States or, or any, any customer, is to build that, that trust. It's all about personal and professional integrity. And as I like to tell people, you know, we're in the intelligence business, but we're also in, in the sales business and the marketing business. And uh, our product just happens to be our analysis. As part of that, that uh, building of that trust and maintaining your integrity, you have to have a full realization of what your role is. And there is a difference between the intelligence world and the policy world. And I believe very strongly you should never cross over uh, that line. Earlier, we mentioned the release of declassified PDBs during the Johnson and Kennedy administrations. At a ceremony at the Johnson Presidential Library, former CIA Director John Brennan read this letter from President Obama. As your Commander-in-Chief, each morning I rely on the expertise of the intelligence community to understand the threats, challenges, and opportunities we face around the world. I depend on your insights and analysis as I make decisions critical to the security of our nation. Put simply, I could not do my job without you. The United States has the most professional and capable intelligence community in the world, and we are going to keep it that way. That's why he appreciates what the intelligence community does. And for us, that is a sacred trust. Our job is to be objective. Our job is to eliminate bias as much as humanly possible. Our job is, as we often say, to speak truth to power. It's somewhat an overused phrase, but it really speaks to what we do, probably the best way that, that we can communicate.
How you doing? Good to see you. It was very cool hanging around the president and traveling with him and seeing him at moments that most people do not see the president in. But I knew that uh, I was neither his policy advisor or his, I was his friend. I was his intelligence officer and I was representing the intelligence community. And our job is to inform decision makers to the best of our ability and leave the policy making to others. They will make decisions whether we're there or not. So our job is to, to try to ensure to the best of our ability that they are informed decisions. If you don't achieve that trust, you can't be effective, right? I mean, they have to believe what you're saying, right? That's right. And that goes to the, the confidence, you know, and people would say, were you scared going into uh, the Oval Office? The answer is, well, not if you're prepared. I mean, the best way to mitigate being scared is to be prepared. So uh, be prepared. I liken it to cramming for finals every single night. It was just like that. So you have to exude confidence, but not arrogance. Because let's face it, Paul, if the briefer is hemming or hawing or, or pausing or sweating or moving around, how is the customer going to have confidence and trust in what you're saying is, is really true? You have to be able to present your material with, with confidence. What I like to call it, I use the three, three C's, clear, crisp, and concise. Uh, put the bottom line up front and address the so what. Mr. President, this is important because the president is a decision maker. Our senior customers are decision makers. They are going to act. They want to act. Uh, they wouldn't be in positions uh, that they have if they weren't people of action. So we're not there to just tell them, you know, for your information. Uh, we have to recognize that their time is precious, so we have to get to the point very quickly. And we have to put things into proper context and perspective. I would probably say the most important thing for all of us and for, for analysts, for briefers, when we are communicating our message to our customer is to put it in context. Otherwise, we're leaving it up to our customers to do that, and, and that's, that's something that uh, we shouldn't put that burden on them. You shared an anecdote that I liked. You mentioned that um, a couple of weeks into the job, President Obama said, hey, Jim, remember what you said? last week, and you kind of had this reaction, uh-oh, he's listening, <laughs> and he's remembering. Yes, <laughs> yes absolutely. Uh, we were talking about a particular issue that uh, had to do with the Middle East, and he said, if I recall, you, you, you mentioned uh, last week that such and such and such and such happened, and I, and I tried not to break stride, you know, as I'm briefing, but I'm thinking, oh my gosh, yes, he, he actually... <laughs> He actually did listen and absorb it. Not that I doubted the president's intellect, but, but I mean, it just, it just uh, you know, underscored that uh, he, was, he was paying attention. And that was the most rewarding thing. Not only, you know, that we, we, the big we, the intelligence community, DIA, were, you know, helping to in, inform the president. I never once saw that we were taking up his time unnecessarily, if I could put it that way. To the contrary, every time that we briefed the president and communicated information, I saw some sort of manifestation of that. He would take action. Good evening, Mr. Prime Minister. It'll be one moment for President Obama. He would either pick up the phone and call a foreign leader. Introducing the Prime Minister. He would either task uh, one of his folks 
to do something about it. Uh, he would either he would he would take action on everything that that we had presented. One of the things that he would say is, "Hey, you know, I want different perspectives as well." Because for him, he said, "You know, I know Iran or Pakistan is a complex issue." I mean, you can't tell me that the intelligence community at every agency agrees on every issue relative to Iran or Pakistan or what have you all of the time. So I want those different perspectives. What opinions did the president ask you to share, and which ones did he not? I often get asked that question. Hey, Jim, did the president ask you should we do this or should we do that?、Uh, the answer to that question is is very easy. No, he never did. I think President Obama was very appreciative of the role of the intelligence community and the difference between the intelligence community and the policy community, and where one begins and one where one ends. So the answer to that question is no. However,、um, the president wanted our views.、Uh, he would often say, "You guys are the experts. I want to know what you think about what's going on in a particular country."、Uh, It's also fair game to to also be able to respond to a question that says, "Hey, if we do this, how would a particular country or leader react?" Because those are intelligence-based、uh, questions. We can we can give intelligence-based answers、uh, to those questions. But to delve into policy, should we do this or should our policy be that? Be that the president never. Never put me in in that position. I think he he recognized that there was a time for us to brief, and then we would leave the room. Once we have informed the policymaker to the best of our ability, there's a time for us to leave the room, li- literally and figuratively, and allow、uh, the president and his team to formulate their policy. How did your brief change over time during your year? How did the style、uh, perhaps change? You mentioned that. You learn to better read the president's body language. At times, you also mentioned that it changed every day. Reading the customer is extremely important. Hello, everybody. Every day, the first thing I did when I walked in the Oval Office was look at the president and read his body language.、Uh, the president is a human being like anybody else. Sometimes he's having really good days. Sometimes he's having some challenging days. And you have to understand that the president's time is extremely precious. So get the message across. Other times, we could have long chats about certain things. One of the briefings that stood out to you had to do with rare earth metals. Tell us a little bit about that. Why that was important, and why you thought that was noteworthy. It was one of those things where even the PDB staff was kind of on the fence. Who do we want to brief this? We talked earlier about some of these enduring issues that the president had on his plate, you know, counterterrorism, Iran, Pakistan, etc., Russia.、Uh, but uh, you know, uh, rare earth metals. How's that going to go? Well, we went ahead and did it, and it was one of the most fascinating sessions that、uh, that I recall in the time that I was a briefer. The president was. Incredibly engaged and concerned about this. This was a case where we were briefing that China was trying to corner the market on these rare earth metals, which are used in a lot of applications, defense applications, etc. And、uh, that ushered in a a very interesting and intense discussion、uh, within the Oval Office amongst、uh, those like, what can we do? This had strategic implications. And again, one of the things our customers always want. The, the strategic 
implications uh, uh, to be briefed, but we always get stuck in the day-to-day -day tactical. But this was, a, this was an opportunity to kind of step away from the day-to-day -day tactical and talk about the long-term implications which are going to affect our, our national security for decades to come. On a little bit lighter note, mm -hmm. tell us about some of the fun things that were a part of this job. Not, I'm not now speaking of getting up at 11 p.m. and being at Langley at midnight. I'm talking about other more actually fun things. Clearly, the funnest part of the job was being on the road, you know, with the president. To be able to, to fly on Air Force One, to be able to go up to Camp David, to be part of the motorcades, you know, just to be part of the excitement uh, that is associated with, with a presidential trip, whether it's domestically or uh, internationally, uh, was just a, a thrill that, that one can never, can never replicate. Uh, one of the things I had on my bucket list was to, to watch the movie Air Force One, you know, with Harrison Ford on Air Force One. So I was able to do that. <laughs> and I don't know how many people in the world have done that, but, uh, but I was able to do that. Speaking of Air Force One, tell us about your first brief on Air Force One. I think that's an interesting story. Generally speaking, we should presume that the Democrats... We were actually flying to uh, Iowa uh, for, uh, for a trip, a domestic trip. We left Washington. We're halfway across the country. We're just about in Iowa. And I thought, okay, well, I guess I'll be meeting and briefing the president later on, either in his hotel room or what have you. And sure enough, as we were starting to descend, uh, the president's uh, personal assistant came to me and he said, uh, the president will see you now, the boss will see you now. So, okay, uh, grab, grab my briefing, uh, my briefcase and, and go into the president's cabin. And so I went in and there he was. He was in the process of changing his clothes and getting ready for the event that, that he was gonna have in Iowa. And he said, okay, Jim, go, you know, what do you got? So. Uh, went in, went into the, the presentation, falling back on those principles, you know, be cre clear, crisp, and concise, the bottom line up front, and uh, address the so what. While he's dressing, and we're descending, and we're eating, eating, uh, hitting a little turbulence, and, and I'm thinking to myself as I'm going through this, wow, they just don't teach you this in Intel school. I mean, <laughs> you know, how do you prepare really for something like this? Uh, but it went great, it went fine, uh, we touched down, and the president the door opened up and the president went down the ramp as he does as you see on TV and we went out the back and that started that started our day so that was my first my first briefing experience on Air Force One Shifting gears again let's talk about lessons learned a little bit you've got some you've got some years since leaving that position you've were there for a year um, what do you think were the key lessons that you learned what what worked well? What did you learn did not work? You would think that the PDB might get easier uh, over time, you know, as you're going through that process. In certain ways it is, but from a substantive end, it actually gets harder and harder because the president's knowledge base, your customer's knowledge base becomes deeper and they become more and more familiar. So to continue to be value-added, you have to constantly reach, reach down deeper and, uh, and get even more information. At first, anything you're briefing, when a president, incoming president comes in, is for the most part is going to be new and interesting and okay. Then you're, by the time a president leaves, whether four years or eight years, they're like, hey, you know, I know more about this than, than, than you do. 
And we are certainly wiser thanks to Jim being so forthcoming and sharing his unique experiences. Jim, you've made DIA proud, not only for your assignment as the first Defense Intelligence Agency briefer to the president, but the entirety of your distinguished career. And for that, we'd like to say thank you and give you the last word. The reason I'm here today is to, to try to give back, give back to our agency, to share those experiences with, with, my, with my peers and with those that are coming up uh, through the ranks because I've just simply just been the fortunate beneficiary of, of being able to have those experiences. And I want us to be the best uh, intelligence agency on the planet. And we are. And my message to all of our officers is DIA is the, is the, is the finest defense intelligence organization on the planet. I've seen a lot of our counterparts. I know what they do, know what their capabilities are. No one, no one holds a candle to us. And we should be proud about that. To learn more about the Defense Intelligence Agency, check us out on DIA.mil and follow us on social media. Thanks for listening to DIA Connections.